Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arnevenheim, futurist and author. In episode 80 of the podcast, the topic is the future of personal development. Our guest is Nick Jankel, transformational futurist, the CEO and co-founder of Switch On, and author of the new book, Now Lead the Change. In this conversation, we talk about the personal development market, VUCA, which means volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, trends in self-help, leadership, therapy, coaching, and healing, brain science, even wisdom, practical psychology, and biotransformation theory. Now Lead the Change is a new book on mastering transformational leadership. We talk about the future of business and human personal development in the next decade and beyond, and how to be future-proof as organizations and individuals. Nick, how are you today? I am really good. Excited by the events of the last few weeks. Yeah, it's been uh, <laughs> it's been hectic. All right, uh, Nick, you are a um, transformational futurist. That's what you uh, call yourself. I find that interesting. We'll explore a little bit what uh, what that means. I I, um, I think I know what it means, uh, but it's also super ambitious. But I know you've been lecturing at uh, you know uh, Yale and Oxford. You've been advising the UK Prime Minister. You've uh, been covered in uh, a bunch of uh, publications such as The Economist, The Guardian, um, and I'm assuming your path to towards becoming a transformational futurist is is interesting. So I wanted you to just chart that path for us. How, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, so I was always interested in the new um, and the coming as a kid. Um, science, technology. I read a lot of sci-fi. Um, but I wasn't I wouldn't say I was a futurist geek at that point. Um, that came a bit later. So I went to medical school, wanted to be a psychiatrist, um, wanted to heal the souls of the people. Um, and about two-thirds of the way through the medical degree, I decided I was more interested in ideas, history of ideas and the future of ideas, than I was um, psychiatry per se. So I jumped out got a job in advertising, in consumer psychology and behavior and brand design. And that's where I first encountered the idea of trends, trend spotting, um, futurism as a career that people had made. But the kind of futurism that was going on there was more what I cheekily call, you know, next year is going to be all about beige, um, which has nothing to do with what I do. I'm super uninterested in these sort of uh, trend lines. Um, what I became much more interested in is what are the um, driving forces and the fault lines of change. Um, I studied scenario planning with the guys at um, GBN um, and started to apply all that thinking into innovation and innovation theory, um, and particularly into long-range innovation. So five, seven, 10, 20-year innovation cycle, or Horizon 3 innovation. To do Horizon 3 innovation, you have to have a deep sense of what kind of future is moving towards us. Um, and long story short, um, developed thinking on those um, topics. Um, and now I work at the intersection between, say, futurism, um, human development, people development, leadership development, innovation, um, in different strengths of those, depending on what I'm doing. Um, so that's kind of a very potted history I got here. 
That's cool. So then uh, to answer my question on transformational futurist, what exactly is it that's being uh, transformed? Is it the world's being transformed? Is it yourself personal transformation? Uh, are you uh, engaged in the transformation or is it the subject that you work for? I'm just kind of curious about uh, who is being transformed. <laughs> just we, remind me of when uh, in the Lord of the Rings, when, when um, I think Bilbo goes, good morning, and Gandalf goes, is it a good morning? Is it you telling me it's a good morning? Is it a good morning? And so uh, it just made me laugh. Um, so um, I would say all of those, all of those things. Um, I kind of I'm going to go back to Marx, the the philosopher Marx, uh, where he says that you know the point of not just to study uh, the world but to change it. And I guess for me, the point of futurism is not to just see what's coming on the future, but to transform the future in the way that we envisage it. And to do that, we have to also transform ourselves um, so that we can envisage clearly and deliver a vision that's compelling and leads to a regenerative future rather than a future just good for me. Um, and so there's a lot of transforming going on. So I guess I wanted to make sure that people think when they book me, particularly for keynotes, they're not booking someone who's going to give them a detailed understanding of CRISPR or blockchain. I can talk about all those things in passing. But I'm going to focus more on who do you have to be to make use of this future? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a leading question on my side, because I do know that your new book is called Now Lead the Change, right? So it's future-proof your career, your organization, and your world. So I mean, I, I think I was tuned into this. Speak to me a little bit about this book, because uh, it, it seems to speak to exactly that, the, that your point here is to transform the individual and, and use all the external things that are changing around them more as the material, I guess, that's uh, the conditions for that change or, or, or I guess, maybe uh, kind of fodder for that change. Tell me about this yes. book. I would say, so the book is um, the three parts. And part one, as you say, is basically a look at how evolutionary theory demands that we change ourselves. Uh, and it does that through looking at the future, looking at three different um, dynamics that are going on. Um, and basically says there's an imperative change the transformation imperative no one gets out of it if you're google or uber you have to do it whether you're an ancient company that's been around for 200 years it's for everyone to deal with that's the first part second part goes okay now how how do we step up to this mm -hmm. um, the premise being that um you have to change yourself particularly your thoughts and, and beliefs and your behaviors if you're going to change your company um as I say to my clients, there's no point walking into a room of your senior exec saying, go and be innovative, go and create the future in a sort of aggressive, dysfunctional style, because that's just not going to create what you want. And then the third part of the book goes, okay, now that you understand the biology of change in yourself a little bit, as much as I understand it, um, what is the journey for you as a leader? Where do you go with that? And how do you essentially change your company from the inside out? As in, start with yourself then go to your team, then go to the products and services you sell, and then go a bit further than your company into the system as a whole. And how do you guide the system that you're part of to be a more responsible and ethical and sustainable system? Hmm. So I want to talk to you about kind of this personal development market that you are delivering services into, because you are indeed, uh, I guess, a hybrid of a futurist and a personal development coach in some sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something like that. But before we get there, 
you know, if you then, I guess, whether it's the first part of the book or the first part of the, you know, of analyzing the problem, would you, would you start, you, you always ask your clients to start with themselves in terms of analyzing what's going on, or do you ask them to look at kind of the volatility around them? Like what is actually step one in, in your transformation journey? I almost invariably, I mean, it depends, but I always invariably start with the outside. We go outside right. in and then we go inside out and then we might go outside in again. Sure. Um, and um, <clears throat> that's for various reasons. But I find that if we start any conversation, whether it's a, um, a story, a keynote, which is a story, or whether it's a coaching or a leadership program, if we go straight to you, we've lost the kind of why and we've lost the fundamental reality that I always talk about, which is you've got to fit. You've got to fit what's going on. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in adaptation, transformation. It's just really irrelevant what your beliefs are. If the world's changing fast, which it is, you have to keep yourself in line with that change, your own self, a career, your career. Um, if you think you're going to, for example, I often say to people, if you think you're going to be a, a data a data miner um, uh, and expect to be better than an AI, you're probably going to be out of luck because an AI will almost certainly be able to manipulate analyze data better than being in the next, probably now already, but in the next five years, definitely. Um, so I start outside in and then I very quickly go, okay, let's flip it totally into the micro moments of your being and you're feeling a certain thing and you're thinking certain ways and then you're doing certain things because that's really where you can start any change happening. Um, so yeah, outside in, then inside out. Um, and therefore we're always talking about seems like two different things, which is personal development and let's call it organizational change, innovation, social change, political change. Mm -hmm. which in the bookshop are two different books, two different categories of books. Exactly. Um, and my work has always been about going, if you're doing personal change, then you're doing world change, and world change requires personal change. So they're actually one continuum. Um, it doesn't fit neatly in the bookshop. Talk to me about the current moment in human history, not just, you know, the uh, last week's developments, which, you know, may or may not be relevant, you know, when we uh, post this podcast. But, you know, uh, ostensibly, where do you think we find ourselves uh, or where do you tell your clients we find ourselves at this moment in history? I think it's a very exciting moment in history. I, I guess when you live through any exciting moment in history, everyone thinks their moment is more exciting than the last 30 years ago or 100 years ago. But I do think there are some characteristics of our times which are particularly interesting. Um, and I'll talk about three of them, which is the three lenses that I look at the world through. Um, it's a rough, you know, it's not a, meant to be accurate. It's meant to be useful uh, map. And the three areas I look through um, in this, what I call 3D futures framework, the first one is uh, digital. And that means everything from um, AI and blockchain through to biotech, CRISPR, 3D printing of kidneys, whatever. The whole capacity of digitalization to change how we offer value and, and what kind of value we can offer is fundamentally found. Um, and I also think we're at the beginning of that journey. So I was around in sort of website, you know, webs, websites 1.0, you know, dot com boom original. Um, I then seen the sort of 2.0, and I think we're still there's going to be 5.0, and we don't know what that is yet. And we, and one of the things I often say to people, which I find endlessly fascinating, given that I'm often to very smart people, is no one human being can understand the social and human impact of any one of these digital fourth industrial revolution technologies, let alone how they all are going to interact together in a complex web 
of um, you know, bits and, and bricks and biology. Right. So do you, do you, when you talk to experts about this, do you feel that the experts agree with you that they uh, increasingly are losing uh, sight of the things that are outside of their particular field of expertise? Or do you, or do you sense that uh, there are people out there who are still trying uh, to grasp at the totality of what's going on? I think it's the futurist job to grasp and then to be humble with the impossibility of that grasp. And to do both. But I do think, I, I just happened to watch a documentary actually last night on CRISPR and um, Cas9 proteins and all the things that are going on there. And it was very clear that the world's experts, you know, the potential Nobel Prize winners in this in these areas, are very focused on their bit of this hugeness, um, whether it's sickle cell anemia or, or um, creating sheep, pigs from without various different functions. They're all very specific. And that's the, the nature of the, the modern reality. When I say modern, I mean from sort of 17th century to now, which is you gain your expertise through going deeper and deeper into one tiny thing. And then maybe some people come back out of that and become generalists again. Um, I think, therefore, I think the technic technicians know one thing really well. Um, and the job of the generalist and futurist have to be generalists to do this job. Like, when I say futurist, I don't necessarily mean that's on your business card your job is strategy, if your job is CEO-ness company, you have to be a futurist of some. And our job is to join up the dots and be super humble that there's never been anyone who's ever predicted accurately the complex webs of change that occur. New technologies are interested into the market. And what's interesting about now is not just like the book, the printed book, which in itself was only one part of a web of technologies that, that were needed. For example, the sales force that had to sell books had to change fundamentally the process of old books um we're having like a hundred of those happening at the same time a hundred printing presses are being generated and it's it's phenomenal and dizzying and, and amazing um and worrying obviously we have lots of worries about this um so that's kind of one that, that's one major lens to look through but what i think is interesting about it is unprecedented opportunities do things in a fundamentally different way not just a little bit different fundamentally different um Second D is 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 more interesting in some ways, but less showy, less jazz hands, which is um, disrupted societies, disrupted generations, different types of needs and wants. And it's very easy to forget in any market, whether you're a CEO or a church leader um, or social enterprise, you exist to serve the needs of your clients, customers, your users. And if those needs are changing quickly, which they are, between generations and even within generations, then you have to really think about how um, to serve real needs because otherwise you won't have a business. Because if an empowered 25-year-old can solve the problem you designed your company to solve, 73, 83, 93, 2003, even 2013, you won't be in existence when they are your major customer. So that's really interesting. And that requires a, more of a sort of anthropological or sociological frame to understand these things, not be afraid, afraid of them. Uh, and then the thir third D, the lens, is the fact that I think most of us are now waking up to the reality that our ecological systems, our financial systems, um, our biological systems are stressed to the point of breakage. Um, and I call that the damaged world. Um, and that's really intense. And I don't think any one human being can solve any really one of those damaged world problems, but we should all be aware of all of them, whether it's pollution, 
um, which kills about apparently a million people in China alone a year, um, whether it's climate change, whether it's coral reefs dying, etc. And then what you get with those three Ds is an equation where you've got technologies um, plus new needs equals potentially alleviating some of the great crises of our age, as well as making a good return. And that's kind of, for me, the, the benchmark I'm holding myself to, the benchmark I'm holding my clients to, my audiences to, which is use digital, don't just scale without thinking about externalities, scale thinking about purpose as well as profit, and really find the customer of the future that you want to serve and serve their authentic problems, not your made-up problems for them, because they've got plenty of authentic problems. Yeah, I was kind of curious about that because, you know, leading the change, you say, but what's the point of that change? Because part, partly, of course, if you're talking about just uh, disruptive change happening around people, then it's just about dealing with it or, or capitalizing on it. But you're, why uh, do they need to lead this change? I mean, is that kind of both to achieve personal balance and to capitalize? It's a joint, uh, you're arguing that, uh, you know, analyzing the emerging future has two separate benefits. One, yeah. achieving kind of unity with yourself and healing and uh, basically kind of balance of some sort. And two, it, it has to do with uh, capitalizing on opportunity, which you couldn't do if you didn't really understand what was happening around you uh, to this detailed degree. I go to even a third. So I talk about in the book, a triple win, um, a win, win, win. And that's the kind of question you ask yourself. What's the win for me in terms of my balance? Um, Purpose, sense of meaning, sense of belonging, enjoyment of my work, um, financial reward for sure, um, seeing my kids, you know, a reasonable amount of time, et cetera, et cetera. So what's the win for me? What's the win for my company, uh, my organization? Um, how do I align those two? And then I do believe the transformational leader is always thinking, and what's the win for the world? How do I alleviate, for example, unemployment in my area or apprenticeship, lack of apprenticeship places? or um, waste food within our model. Um, and the more we bring those things to the center of a model, um, the faster we're going to get to a point where we go, you know what, we've cracked climate change, we've cracked, we're actually going to have a world. Um, and one of the things we often say uh, in our work is there is no economy without an ecology. doesn't matter how successful your business is, if there aren't people and resources to buy and produce your things, there is no business. So yeah, triple Nick, what's the triple? Nick, are you optimistic or pessimistic uh, uh, around this present moment? Both in equal, probably, and profoundly ambivalent in a good way, um, which I call in my book the third way, where you're bringing two seeming opposites together, which I think is key to leadership: is helping people realize that left and right, up and down, bottom up, top down. They're all. If you can bring them together, you usually get the outcome, the better outcome. So I. I'm deeply pessimistic, and I use that pessimism to alarm people. You know, I want to alarm people that there is some fundamental stuff that can't be looked at, you know, pushed anymore away. Um, but if I was just a pessimist, I shouldn't be on stage anywhere um, because it's not a good place. It's not a functioning place to leave people in because the brain network we're in when we're threatened isn't very good at creating new responses. Um and therefore, I always bring people into optimism. I also am profoundly optimistic. We are amazing human beings. Um, the thing I think we have to always remember is we're not saving the planet, we're saving ourselves. 
the planet will be fine. It will continue past us, as done in the past, until the sun explodes, right? Um, the question of whether we as a species are here, whether we can handle 7 billion, 8 billion, 9 billion people, those are bigger questions that are up for grabs. Um, and we've seen what happens when people feel that their wages are being stagnated and their work is meaningless. We've seen what it creates in society over the last five, 10 years. And it's not nice for a lot of people. And doesn't make for good business. It doesn't make for stable economies. And it's all interactive, all interrelated, right? So I'm deeply pessimistic, deeply optimistic. Um, actually, I wrote an article on Medium, if anyone wants to search for it, saying, do not be positive in a pandemic. Because there was a rash of positivity. You go, it's all going to be okay. It's like, that doesn't help. It doesn't help to be positive, fakely positive. But neither does it help to be doom and gloom, catastrophizing, over-dramatizing. And a leader has to look at things right as they are. This is the reality and find a way to go. And there is something we can still do. Um, and that action point, there's something we can do today, not just conceptually, is where I think hope comes from, you know, where you can draw hope from. I, I like that, the, this balance, because uh, I have also seen both, right? You see, see these uh, arguments that, you know, the pandemic doesn't do anything, uh, you know, you could ignore it. And then you have those people saying, well, it's going to lead to all these massive positive changes, uh, you know, without regard for the fact that there's obviously been uh, and is a tremendous destruction. And then, of course, the uh, dystopian view, which is, you know, the entire world is simply falling apart and there's nothing we can do about it, which sort of leaves us with, uh, I guess, you know, lack of agency. Talk to me a little bit more about personal development, because, you know, I guess I'm used to thinking of that market as like you said, a, a coaching type market, very separate from any kind of awareness of change uh, beyond the individual sort of psychological needs for change. How do you see this market evolving? Is it actually now, I mean, are you among the few that combines this idea of futurism and awareness of the external realities with uh, personal development? Or, or is there now a move within this personal development uh, field to, to increasingly take in tr trends from the outside and, and kind of the socioeconomic picture as, as part of healing, with, as you, as you might, may, might call it? Well, I think when I first had my sort of epiphany about these two things being one thing, I was definitely one of the lonely voices. I remember sending my book uh, that connected personal development with social change to the guy who published um, Eckhart Tolle's book, um, the Power of Now bestseller. Um, and they sent back to me going, very interesting, but we don't publish um, politics or society books. We just reality books. I was like, oh. Um, that was 15 years ago. Um, I think the world has moved on. I think people are definitely bringing, um, you know, the personal and the political are coming together. Um, there are books about that. If you look at Extinction Rebellion, for example, there's quite a lot of focus on personal well-being, resilience, um, Black Lives Matter, the same. There's a mindfulness um, programs in both uh, the, S the Senate in the US and uh, the Houses of Parliament in the UK. So there is a, g a growing insight that if we are not functioning well ourselves, then we aren't going to be making great decisions for our companies slash society. That said, there's a tendency in the personal development space to become very narcissistic um, and hedonistic all about me. In fact, I was actually writing an article that I wrote five years ago, but I'm going to publish on Medium soon. It looks at um, research into 
the original shamans, so not the ones that you see now on billboards in cities everywhere, but the actual shamans in villages, in towns, and uh, in pueblos in Peru or whatever. And the history of shamanism makes it quite clear that the ec- ecstatic altered states that shamans help their get into is not for their own personal healing and benefit. It's so that they can understand what to do with the tribe, how the tribe is going to fit with what nature is moving, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's still a tendency within the personal element space to be all about my best self. That's the current phrase, right? I'm living my best life. And that for me is the, totally the wrong message of personal. Yes, I need to heal my own trauma. Yes, I need to sort my relationships out. I need to make sure I've got an income. I'm not living on the street, all these things. And that's just the entry point to them being of a useful role in society. Um, whatever you look, however you see that. Um, so the market's changing. Um, I actually did some little bit of research uh, prior to this just to check out the, the some of the, the numbers in this. And um, I was amazed to see that well-being as a whole is a $4.5 trillion business. And it's three times the size of the pharmaceutical industry. So now within well-being, there's lots of different bits. Weight loss to coaching. Um, but it's interesting that people are definitely realizing that they have to invest in themselves alternative ways to the medical system. Um, and it is a growing market. Yoga's obviously huge. But again, yoga developed as a almost an ethical tool um, for living in accordance with Brahman or spiritual thing. But it's now become a kind of way to get tight, a tight butt. Um, it's a tight butt solution. So you can see how we easily take these technologies personal development and turn them all into how do I live my best life and so for me there is a lot of change but there is growing recognition that we can't just keep on our own yoga mat we have to push out into the world I think that's a generational thing as well generation of younger people going it's not just about meditation it's about social action I see a parallel actually to another topic that we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is startups, because, you know, uh, many of the startups I've worked with uh, at MIT, especially, you know, the founders didn't start with the departure point of what's in it for me. They started with, you know, what is a problem in my community around, my, you know, around me and how can I fix it in this case, typically using technology. But it was interesting to me that, you know, in working with, uh, you know, a couple of thousand founders, they, many of them were able to create very successful companies because the mindset wasn't just me, me, me. The mindset wasn't just my tech, you know. It was first finding something around you that you were uh, upset about, that you saw was negative for uh, a, a group of people around you, and then trying to fix it. And I think ostensibly a lot of the good part of this startup craze where everyone, you know, now wants to start their own company um, up until a point, it's actually really good self-development because it is focused on the community in the same way that, you know, I guess you're focused on the community if you start an, an NGO. But I have also seen the excesses, and I wanted to comment on that, when starting a company becomes a lifestyle. So you have these like espresso drinking startup folks, you know, who sit in whether it's London or New York or wherever it is, and they you know, would love to go to all of these networking meetings and eat free pizza and, and, and have espresso and sip and talk about their startup projects. And uh, that's not necessarily, that's kind of the, the equivalent of getting a, 
uh, you know, we're working on your butt in uh, in yoga, I guess. It's, I would say not just the equivalent. It's the same. It's the same human craving to use something that is agnostic. So a startup is agnostic. Meditation right. is agnostic. Technology is agnostic. So we always forget this, right? Um, I write in one of my books that disruptive technology was um, uh, the gas used in the in Holocaust. It was disrupted. It, it scaled something that had to be done usually by a bullet. Suddenly, you could do you know a few hundred people. So technology is agnostic. Startups agnostic or agnostic. And again, you can use the wrong part of you, if you like, to use startup culture as a way of make, feeling good about yourself. You know, the global nomad. I'm in Bali this week. I'm in Burning Man next week. Do I have an actual company? Don't really know. Don't really care. Someone else is paying, whether it's an investor or a, or a parent. Um, versus people who are deeply passionate about solving something. I saw this in the late 90s. You know, people were more worried about what their type of furniture they were buying for their office than they were whether they actually had a customer proposition that someone actually wanted. Um, and that's my first business was actually helping funded startups find an actual business proposition using consumer <laughs> insight, consumer knowledge, right? That, so that was, that was I, I've seen all that thing. But I would agree with you, most startup people that I know who are successful, the ones I end up working with myself, um, genuinely care about something. Now, one of the things I try and challenge people in, is it, is it a sort of middle-class problem? Um, is it a entitled problem that you're trying to solve? Like, can I park in San Francisco? No. Okay, let's create a whole app all about, you know, millions of dollars of people's time and energy and money focused on something. That really, it's not what I call a problem worth solving. Um, or can we use purpose, which comes from that personal development piece, as a lens to go, I can feel where I'm comfortable and where I think I might get money, but I want to push myself into where there's actual a problem that if we solved it, it would then cause fundamental, you know, triple win in the world. Um, and then be careful for the Facebook effect where you start with that kind of mentality and you get sucked back by the logic of markets to chase the easy money, the middle class, the upper middle class money, entitled money. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think I'm actually cautiously optimistic that the COVID moment is pushing at least some people who would have otherwise, uh, I guess, ended up with uh, these, uh, you know, more, more, uh, fluffy startup projects to to try to apply themselves towards something slightly more meaningful. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the medical field, right? I mean, I'm actually pretty upbeat on industrial uh, industry 4.0 type technologies for the specific reason that it addresses one of the things uh, that I think we have neglected for 30 years. You know, we have m made a lot of kind of knowledge worker technology for the white collar worker sitting, you know, to improve our work at the desk. But uh, meanwhile, the great swath of the world population, they still earn their living, you know, actually as a frontline worker in doing something very exposed, whether it is to virus or simply just exposed to other people or exposed to working closely together or, or indeed working with machines. And all of that hopefully is now getting both safer, more efficient and, and perhaps slightly more meaningful as, as technology is helping. Exactly, because the technology can take away the banality and the mundanity of a lot of these things and allow right. people to feel like they're bringing some, some brain and some heart into their work because the technology is taking care of some of the of those basic movements, um, atoms, things. Like, yeah, me, me too. Factories and frontline workers, um, meatpacking, you know, these sort of places where it's been pretty grim the last few months, from what I can understand. I'm, I've got friends and family who are such frontline workers. And while I've been 
spending a lot of time on Zoom, they've been frantically working, you know, their asses off to, to make the world um, work and to keep themselves safe. And the, the amount of um, stress they've been going through just with their own safety. Um, in fact, my mother-in-law in Sacramento was asked to work. Um, she's you know over seventy. Asked to work on the front lines in the middle of the first lockdown um, as the greeter for people coming in and out of the building corporation, and um, you know that was a, r- a real source of concern and worry for her. So yes, I think if we can use the pandemic as a, a catapult point for purpose for solving lots of people's different problems. I mean, the, one thing I often say is the great news is, speaking to young people, the great news is there are problems worth solving everywhere. If you take off your goggles, your entitled goggles, and just go and walk around your one community, you will see loneliness, depression, homelessness, uh, meaninglessness, you know, ill health, et cetera, et cetera. There is literally no shortage of problems worth spending a lifetime to solve. I have a question. So you said you wanted to become a psychiatrist. Let's go back to that for a second. I don't know if this is actually your intended goal, but in some way you are scaling psychiatry with this approach, right? Because at least pre-pandemic, you were, you know, you were giving leadership lessons and coaching and uh, and speeches, I guess, to a mass audience. Yes. Or at least a larger audience than you would have if you were in the traditional mode of giving pills to individual people or or, or even just coaching individuals. You Tell practice. me a little bit about scaling scaling wellness that way. Because, you know, traditionally, it is a coach-type, one-to-one relationship. And, you know, there are obviously a lot of safeguards involved with that. <laughs> and it's good to, to meet another human being when you are vulnerable. How can these kinds of approaches scale? I mean, that's my kind Safely. Of, yeah. I mean, that's my, you know, problem that I, I ask myself every day. You know, how can I scale this technology? I've been asking it for a long time. So the, one of the things that we've developed... Um, in the company is a peer-to-peer coaching. So it basically says, um, what's the greatest uh, market failure of therapy, coaching, psychiatry? It's having a professional because it limits the number of people. And whatever we think about my thinking, whatever anyone thinks about scaling the unscalable, um, 7 billion people, there aren't going to be enough trained therapists to deal with everyone's worries, pain, suffering, trauma. So. I think part of the solution is peer-to-peer. So we've got a, two toolkits, one for leaders, one for individuals, which you connect with a colleague or a buddy or a friend or a lover, um, partner, you maybe have a child. Um, and it holds you fairly safely through six to 12 <laughs> sessions of coaching. Um, there are things we've done to minimize the risk of what a therapist might call an ab reaction, where you're triggering kind of painful moment um, so we reduce efficacy in order to increase safety, which is standard practice in the medical world, right? Is you have a sure. You can have surgery with a brain surgeon, um, but we can't afford that or you don't have one. So we're going to do something else. It's not going to be quite the thing, but it's going to be close to the thing. So that's one approach is peer-to-peer. Um, and we're about to actually relaunch our peer-to-peer toolkit with quite a big push uh, back into the world uh, because the moment is obviously of this moment, very much so. Um, I am then have been also looking very hard, hardly at what happens after meditation apps. Where do where does where does appification take transformation? Um, and particularly given that we've already codified a lot of our tools for large audiences, so I've done audiences. I've done 
workshops for 5,000 people in 30 different countries using printed tools that we've codified so they can actually do something, not just listen to us. Mm-hmm. But all those tools, how do we use machine learning particularly to provide the right thing at the right moment for someone and potentially create new tools by disassembling the tools we've got and reassembling them in interesting ways that I couldn't possibly tell the machine. And then the third level, I do think VR is what I think we will end up going from peer-to-peer to app to VR, where you could essentially have um, a kind of guru coach with you um, who understands you, understands whether you like music or visuals or words, what things bring you to tears, what things inspire you to, to action and can start to learn how to relate to you in a way that even the best therapists, like if you're talking about old-fashioned five-days-a-week analysts, um, can't do. You know, in the six sessions of counselling you get on the national health system in England, there's not a lot of customization. I agree. I mean, there's a striking lack of personalization in medicine compared to where we are technologically. But I, but I think also, you know, having reflected on this pandemic moment, there was an awful lot of technology that wasn't ready for prime time either, right? We, I think we thought we had uh, future work technologies sorted out. We didn't. We thought we had vaccine technology, you know, very advanced. It was like five years too early, right? Even for the n- newer types of vaccines that are now going to come out, uh, the mRNA type vaccines. So we really didn't have everything sorted out. This was a question I actually didn't know that I was going to ask you, but is there a way to save the Facebookification? Uh, I don't know if that actually is a word, but uh, the social m- mediation of the world, let's just make it neutral. Uh I mean, arguably, it's been a lost decade for uh, ma- mass communication, uh, or, you know, with some meaning, right? And we arguably, uh, these companies have almost destroyed the public space. Um, is there a way to rescue them as individual companies for good? Or do we have to wait for the next technological and entrepreneurial wave to create something very, very different, a different animal that can actually do what these companies claim they were doing. You know, Google, don't do evil, and Facebook, I don't know exactly what they claimed early on, but it was something to do with, like, connecting uh, friends, uh, you know, across borders and, and doing wonderful things. And neither of the companies really did w- what they said they were doing, and I think that's a universally acknowledged uh, issue. Not to say that they are doing evil, but they clearly haven't they haven't kind of brought the world to a new uh, consciousness level in the way that you you were uh, would work with with that word. What is the next stage of technology? You know, in that regard. I mean, this is this is the edge of my where I'm at as a as a thinker futurist. So I've just created the beginnings of a keynote um, called regenerative Te- regenerative regenerative technology. So how do we take the concept of regenerative agriculture, which is now big? Uh, going big. I mean, Walmart has just declared it will be a regenerative business. How do we take this idea of not just minimizing damage, but actually mulching human society, making it better, aerating the soil of our society through social media? And, and I'm working on a set of principles, if you like, design principles for regenerative tech, which are a mixture of soft stuff, consciousness stuff. You know, how do I feel, think, and act? Uh, my purpose, our purpose, all those. And then also some harder stuff around business model design. Where, where are the leverage points where you can, for example, reduce extraction? 
one of the big problems of the social media space is you're following the logic of huge um, venture capital investments and then PE investments who are looking at, you know, 100x, 1,000x. That in, just that logic alone will start to feed you into a machine system where no matter how much joy and purpose and meaning you had, it will start to be relentlessly corroded until you get what you have today, unless you have really strong internal leadership, potentially have different choices around money. And so one of the things, so I, w- I obviously have a lot of friends and connections who are in sort of tech for good space. And what one thing you realize over and over again is one of the systemic failures is until we have different forms of investors, um, transformational investment um, with different um, asset classes for regenerative capital, different ways of measuring ROI, SROI, ROI, whatever, the logic of capital will continue to eat away against purpose. So I'm kind of both and guy again, as you could probably tell. I think we have to try, and I, the reason I work with large corporates is because I believe they are, as Joe Biden has said, you know, the, the soul of a corporate is still up for grabs anytime. You've got young people coming in with meaning and social justice thoughts. Um, got young, older people who want to bring better talent in, you know, and, and engage them. So you can still fight for the soul of a business at any time and still see if you can course correct it. You can, Nick, but I but I do question this idea that people have. So you, you, you so people seem to go uh, from this one assertion uh, that companies now are becoming equally powerful as nations, right? I, I've even heard it in European uh, leaders have started saying this as a justification for regulating big tech. But then they're sort of saying, well, one one path is regulating; the other thing is just sort of self-imposing that corporations should become more like governments. But isn't that just juxtaposing a uh, I don't, governance framework that doesn't fit because, you know, these uh, big tech companies and other companies, even though they are powerful, they were never governance-wise. They were never set up to actually listen to their employees in a systematic manner. They were never set up to address uh, diversity, you know, really, in a, and fairness. Uh, so all of these things are like their their patchwork fixes on an organizational model that's geared towards something completely different, namely profit. I couldn't agree more. How, how can this be done? So I think so. Definitely, you can course correct, but I also think the new breed of entrepreneurs who are genuinely purpose driven um, will also disrupt some of these people out of the market. I I, I think I'd be amazed if there isn't a so Facebook like app, which many people have tried. Obviously, not reach critical mass, but I'll be surprised if we don't. If someone doesn't invent one in the next ten years that shifts the dynamic back to the people with their data and with their own ownership of their activity. That's so that I think it's a both and. So you've got got well, you've got, got regu- regulation, which I also have to say, and I'm a generally a progressive in, in things. I don't believe regulation is a brilliant tool for changing businesses. I think it's a tool you have to have when people don't do the right thing, and I think it's. Um, but Thomas Paine, who wrote um, Common Sense, uh, part of the American revolutionary spirit, and he wrote it actually in the town near me, talks about the idea of governance as a whole as a badge of lost innocence, because if our consciences were clear, we wouldn't need government to regulate. So I kind right. of personally work on that bit of it. Um, I think government has to regulate because people just aren't moving quick enough. But I do think market forces of talent and finding the best people um, will probably be the best, the bigger change. And I actually worked for a drinks company around 20 years ago, and they were saying, listen, 
irrespective of where the government regulates, which they still haven't really, the drinks industry, it's more of a self-regulated system. No great graduate from MIT, Harvard, whatever, will want to work in a company that create, causes liver cancer without being mindful of it and conscious of it and looking at how to resolve. You know, it's a difficult one. You know, if you sell wine, then you sell cancer. Um, but then same way as if you sell Teslas, you sell car crashes, you just have to be aware of it and work out a way to make the best you can for society. Um, so I do think the bottom-up pressure of the new workforce going, I just don't want to work for you, you know, unless you do this stuff. You know, I think that's where a lot of the value the leverage points are that I can personally see. But I do think we need regulation, unfortunately. I mean, these are these are massive questions, right? But do you think that our current moment in history is different than than 30 years ago when, you know, we, we were on kind of, I guess, another industrial cusp or, or after the Second World War when we were kind of coming out of this, uh, you know, Nazi period and Europe imploding and then into something, you know, arguably great with, with a lot of technology and or, or even just the beginning of the century uh, when we're just coming into... Uh, you know, a tremendous optimism, you know, for a while. And then, of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, dissolved into the First World War eventually. I mean, is is this your sense of history right now in, uh, you know, in this day and age that we are in a pivotal period where these things are going to shift? Or or are we, you know, we're just in a decade change and, you know, we were, we were having these same discussions last decade? Again, both. I think and I've got to watch my own confirmation bias because we all like to think we're in the middle of a epochal era, you know, once in an era, you know, Anthropocene moment. I actually do think we are. And of course, I also want to think I am to give my own life meaning uh, and purpose and value. But I do think we are. I, th I think what we have different from a few years ago, we've really seen the discontents of capitalism that's unbridled from society and, and the externalities it creates. And I think we're all really aware that polluted rivers, dying corals, no fish in the sea, global warming, methane explosions in the Arctic, they're really worryful, you know, climate issues in Louisiana. So I think that's one thing that is very different from 30 years ago um, and definitely 50 years in the 50s, sorry, 70 years ago. And I think we're also aware that human beings alienated so much from their sense of meaning there's not even a valuable job in the factory. It's an invaluable job in the factory. Um, has changed things as well, um, particularly politically, the rise of populism, the direct result of that. Um, um, and I think also we are much more mindful of the, in, the wholeness of everything. So that we've got all these different systems. Somehow understand it all. Will we pivot on this pivotal moment? is again the question of the age it's certainly what i'm dedicating my life life to is helping what i call in the end of the book um the great transformation you know can we use technology in a way that um returns its potential so i, I use an analogy sometimes which is um when you have a nettle you know stinging nettle you also have a dock leaf grows with it near it hopefully um and with the turbo technology of the industrial revolution and then let's say it's epitome in amazon um, where you can get a, you know, prime now, you know, you could get a food in two hours with, through a drone, but the people working in the factory have got COVID and, and are protesting and whatever. Um, I think, 
you know, there's a dock leaf that goes with it, which was the original intent of the open internet connectivity, the peer-to-peer, the, what we're doing now, right, which we couldn't have done 20 years ago. Um, and I just hope that we're rebalancing. So I, I don't talk about revolution anymore. I talk about recalibration. That we're just we're really we're really pushed to one side of what technology and, and and economics can do. And I think we've got to find somewhere in the middle where we might have to give up a little bit of profit, or rather a few people will have to give up a little bit of profit um, in order to make everything else work. Ultimately. Nick, do you think this can be done by progressive taxation or, or, or is it a much more, uh, I mean, it's a very crude tool, right? It's and it's a little bit tool. like regulation. Again, yeah. I think it's something we have to have because, you know, we, our billionaires aren't giving it, giving it away enough. And actually, the billionaires, I don't think are the problem because they are, I think it's the multimillionaires who, are, who just vote in whatever, whoever's reducing taxes, they vote them in. So I think some kind of redistributive tax has to be a stopgap. But again, I fundamentally believe that change can only happen when it, people want to do it from within, um, when they awaken to their own desire to have a, a world for their grandchildren um, or their great-grandchildren, and they want to leave a legacy. These are all the questions of leadership that I think work better from inside out rather than you know, top-down, outside-in. Nick, uh, my last question is, you know, for people who have listened to this conversation, I will obviously link up all of your work. Uh, but if they want to track the trends in this space, whether it's kind of transformational leadership, uh, personal development, this kind of uh, unique mix that you have developed, or indeed, you know, want to be connected on futurism and, and, and associated things that we just talked about, where should they go? Uh, who, who do you recommend? Who, you, who do you listen to? What are your sources of information at this kind of very pivotal moment? I get asked this quite a lot, and I've curated for myself kind of wild, serendipitous feed of emails and podcasts that, that sort of come into me. Um, there are some that I think are brilliant. So if you're interested in sort of neuroscience and, and change of the mind and there's um, one on NPR podcast called Invisibilia, which I listen to fairly religiously, and they turn new breakthroughs into fun stories for an hour of your life. Um, that's a favorite of mine. Um, I have found a number of different feeds for new tech, um, new solutions. I have to say, um, something like Fast Company and Wired are still really good, and they're really good at joining the dots. Um, and they've been doing it for years, and they continue to. Um, I, one of the things I always say to people, read the newspaper once a month that you would never read. Um, so I read, um, uh, Fox news once a week, uh, the app just to get a sense of where everyone's going in that world. I also have recently, recently read one called the national review, which is a sort of more grown up conservative paper, which I also find gives me a flip the other world that I know just don't have that many connections in. Um, and the other thing I do also is I just, I listen, I ask people questions I'm like, like you. I'm just always asking. So if I have a client on the phone, I won't let it happen without me going. So what's, what's moving in your business? Where are the, where, what's going on? Because that's where I get the insight I need. Um, so you can turn every interaction into a, a trend spotting mission. Um, that's uh, actually excellent advice, Nick. Uh, the, the only thing then becomes, you know, who, who do you meet on an everyday basis? So you also have to curate the people you get exposed to. Uh, but, but I think avoiding echo chambers is, it's never been more important. It's never been more important. When, when, I, when I, often I do a leadership program and I ask all these leaders who are really senior and great where they're, 
I give them a bunch of things to sort of measure themselves on. And the one where almost everyone is doing not enough is in networking, as in networking outside of industry, outside of, or even just your company, uh, even within your company. Do you ever go and meet the people in the, you know, in the IoT division? Um, no. Why not? Oh, I just, uh, you know. So one of the things I would say to you, if you're listening to this, is create some, um, and it's also great now because most people aren't going out for coffees, put in some online digital virtual coffees with people that you don't know well or their weak ties on LinkedIn. Just check in and go, would you mind for like a 20-minute call? Um, and start curating the weak ties who can bring you those insights um, once once a month, once every two weeks, so that you're pushing yourself out of your um, very homogenous network into a more heterogeneous network. That's a, that's a great, great piece of advice, Nick. I, I thank you. This has been super interesting. I wish you uh, best of luck with transformational futurism. And I, I indeed hope you succeed because uh, that'll mean uh, a better world, I think. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're all in this together, I think, now. You have just listened to episode 80 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronan Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of personal development. Our guest was Nick Yankel, transformational futurist and the CEO and co-founder of Switch On, and also the author of the new book, Now Lead the Change. In this conversation, we talk about the personal development market, about VUCA, which means volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We discuss the trends in self-help, leadership, therapy, coaching, and healing, including brain science, we discuss wisdom, practical psychology, and biotransformation theory. We figure out how to read cognitive versus emotional signals in yourself and others and discuss the future of business and human personal development in the next decade and beyond. My takeaway is that pers the personal development market is just starting up. If you include therapy, coaching, leadership, and mindfulness apps, it may well be a hundred billion market. The idea that we should be the change we want to see in the world is a saying that has been attributed to the famous Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi, and it's easy to pronounce but hard to do, but may well be an essential insight. What is for certain is that we cannot sit around waiting for positive change, no matter where we are on the societal ladder. Tying it explicitly to futurist thinking was novel to me and quite refreshing. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 51 on AI for learning, episode 16 on perception AI, episode 49 on living the future of work, episode 24 on the future of the second half of life, episode 32, future-proof your business, Episode 33 on One Woman's Empowerment Quest to Help One Million. Episode 73 on The Future is Social Learning. Or Episode 34, Behavioral Signs in Product Design. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.